Disclaimer. In order to preserve the mystery of the play, The Mousetrap, and the movie See How They Run, as requested by both, we will attempt not to reveal either killer in our review. However, there may be unavoidable spoilers given, so listen with care. A charming and entertaining murder mystery, comedy, shows how fiction can distort and harm reality. Are you just watching episode 133? See how they run. <laughs> <laughs> I had resisted that all the way up. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And we are doing another fun little murder mystery. We, you know, we just gotta throw these in every so often. Because, you know, what's not fun about murder? <laughs> well, the way they, they make it out, I mean. True. Very true. <laughs> well, you know, the, this is interesting because... You pick all the murder mysteries. I mean, this was your choice, yeah. and and you did your uh, choice was knives out, out. Was too, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm not a big murder mystery fan, but I will do the occasional comedy. I have no problem with that. And and this mm. movie, I went into with very little knowledge of anything. I mean, I'd heard of Agatha Christie. I don't believe I've ever really imbibed any of her content, but I know who she You've is. You've never watched Praro or. Miss Marple or any of those? Nope. No. Nope. Wow. I told you I'm not I'm just not a fan of, of the murder You're mystery under a genre. Mystery rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no, I have never really been drawn to that kind of content. So I kinda mm. went into this movie very innocent of the amount of I guess Easter eggs and and homages and all kinds of things, pl parallel mm -hmm. plots and everything that existed in this movie. So I was very innocent when I watched it. <laughs> <laughs> but researching it after the fact, it was quite fun. What surprised me the most, I think, sitting through this movie was, you know, that it felt so real. I mean, even though it was a comedy and they were obviously blowing things out of proportion, they were using the names of real people, both in mm -hmm. historic Hollywood and... Uh, real places and all of this. And so I felt like, well, maybe this really did happen. Yeah. But it didn't, obviously. It, it's a fictional take on a real life occurrence. But before we get too far into that, I do want to mention the music in this because this movie had <laughs> really good music. And I have to admit that I kind of really like Daniel Pemberton. The first soundtrack that I ever heard by him was King Arthur, which I thought the movie was terrible. And I actually told you this when we did our review on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, because that was also oh, that's right. one of his soundtracks. And so when we were talking about that movie, I was like, I love this guy's music. I can't stand King Arthur as the movie. But was that the one with Edgerton as King Arthur? I don't even, I've stricken the movie from my memory <laughs> banks. It was so <laughs> bad, bad, in my huh? opinion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's really funny because I have met somebody at work who thinks it's the best movie ever. So we get in little <laughs> arguments about, you know, awful movie versus best movie ever. And there's a big gulf between bad movie and best movie ever. So hmm. I, I, I guess it's a generational thing. He's a lot younger than me. So. <laughs> but. Yeah, 
I, I did not like the movie, but the soundtrack, I have listened to that soundtrack so many times that it makes up for the fact that the movie is so bad. But anyway, this soundtrack was a little bit jazzy. You know, I think he wrote it to kind of fit the 50s feel yeah. and the West End theater feel. So it for Pemberton, it really broke his mold. But I think that that's what makes him such a great score writer is that he breaks molds. His stuff is so original. It, when you listen to his scores, that they don't stand out as being symphonic. They, they're not all the way rock. They're not all the way symphonic. They're just like mixes of different kinds of genres. And I, I really do like that crossover kind of feel to music. Was there any commonality between the King Arthur score and the Spider-Man and into the Spider-Verse score? Slightly. Okay. Um, as we talked about when we did the movie, I loved the Spider-Man score. Yeah. Yeah. The the thing about King Arthur was that it had this really weird rhythm in it. it you know, like using different kinds of instruments to create rhythm, I think. Kind of like mm-hmm. loud, blaring horns that just were strident and created this really weird, almost like hunters riding and blowing their horns kind of thing, but that was more as a rhythm. And then he used okay. that same kind of feel in the Spider-Verse, like to introduce one of the villain characters had that same sound to him. So yeah, that was something that he kind of held in common between those two scores. But you don't hear that in this one. And I would never, until I saw his name, I wouldn't have even thought it was a Pemberton score because it's not his usual. But it broke his mold. And I think that's kind yeah. of what he does is really it original. really good range. Yeah. Yeah, he does really original stuff, and I appreciate that. So we'll play a little bit of it here so you can hear what it sounds like. All right. So I did find the movie entertaining, even though I'm not a big murder mystery fan. I think I I appreciated the humor more than the murder mystery. I think the movie really wasn't really pushing the whole murder thing on the murder mystery or the whole mystery thing. I think it was more of a homage to Agatha Christie with a homage to the (laughs) mousetrap with a homage to the genre. (laughs) And it wasn't really taking the whole mystery aspect of the whole thing as seriously as the rest of it. And and then, obviously, the humor, it appears from the reviews I've seen, is that you either really love the way they did the humor, or you really hate it. And you felt like it fell flat. And part of that might be, you know, reviewers who don't understand British humor, maybe. I don't know. But I, I saw a lot of really great love, like four or five star ratings, and then one or two star ratings, because the humor was so bad. I like that they didn't take themselves too seriously. Yeah. It shows in, in how they do it, how so much of the movie is actually broadcast, you know, before you actually get to the part where they're talking about. Right, exactly. They, they, they did still a lot did of prophetic it. They did it stuff. really well. Yeah. It was funny because there was a part in the movie where the director, who's the guy that actually gets offed at the beginning, is storyboarding how he wants the movie about the mousetrap to end. And as soon as that happens, I'm like, that's going to come back somewhere. Mm. I bet you anything we're going to see that again. 
wasn't there even a uh, a bit where they talk about flashbacks and and then yeah. they say yeah nobody does flashbacks anymore <laughs> and it, they they do it in a flashback yeah exactly yeah yeah th- I mean it's just like they are playing off of all of the stuff and and having fun with it it was just a really cute movie it was one of those ones where. You go because you know that it's not going to be some great epic movie. You're just going there to just sit through something entertaining. And yeah. it, it fit the bill for that. And sadly, when I went to see it the Saturday before we recorded this, I was the only one in the theater. They literally mm-hmm. ran the movie just for me. I sat smack dab in the middle and watched it all by myself. <laughs> My wife and I saw it the next day on Sunday after church. And I want to say there were only four seats in the entire theater sold, and I did not see anyone occupy the other two seats. (laughs) Oh, no. It really does speak to how important the marketing of a movie is. Yeah. Because Sam Rockwell, I mean, he's an Oscar winner. Yeah. He is a remarkable character not even a character actor a remarkable actor right and has such range in his performances i am shocked that he doesn't have more people who are dedicated to seeing him but see how they run i don't remember seeing a single television advertisement for it yeah i don't even remember how i saw the original trailer where i looked at it and said we should do this one i think i i did see a trailer for it in the theater. I'd have to go okay. back and look at my notes, but I do believe I did see it run as a trailer. But yeah, there's huh. been very little advertising for it. And in this day and age, when people are still just now getting back to the theater, you know, to run a movie like this that just did not have any kind of marketing behind it. And it really kind of has a niche audience, too. So it's not like, you know, everybody's going to go want to see this movie. Yeah. But and I think they were may have been trying to to you know like feed off of the knives out crowd, but even that mm-hmm. wasn't a really lo- large audience. It did better than they hoped for, but it still didn't come anywhere near you know Marvel yeah. status. Oh yeah, well, a movie like this wouldn't even as bad as a Marvel movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know it's interesting because little piece of trivia, The Mousetrap, which has been continuously running in the West End for over 70 years, mm-hmm. was only halted because of COVID, because they locked down all of London. They couldn't do anything public. And so they had to cancel the the play. And I believe it was on an 18-month hiatus before they brought it back. And even then, there was some really some interesting things I read because they said that when they did bring it back, they had to open it at a loss because they had to have three separate casts who were ready to step in and play the run the play, and they had to keep quarantined from each other so that if any cast member <laughs> came down with COVID, the entire cast would be quarantined. So they had wow. to have a stand-in cast that could step in. So they were paying three separate casts and... Because of social distancing, they couldn't fill the theater. So, probably had to leave like two seats between each yeah, and group they, or something like that. Yeah. So, they said that at max, they could only fill the theater to half capacity. And that was if they had like groups of six. So, yeah, huh. it, 
so they were operating at a loss when they reopened, which is crazy to think. But they so desperately wanted to get the the play back into run because it had never been on hiatus for a seventy year run. Mm-hmm. I think the way I would look at it is it's it's never been shut down due to lack of an audience uh, popularity or yeah. An audience, yeah, yeah. And then kind of a double irony on this: they had started production on See How They Run before COVID. But because of COVID, they were able to film on location in parts of London that they would never have had access to otherwise Mm. because they were shut down. And so they were able to use like the theaters and the hotels and all of the, you know, like historic settings. Hmm. And and so they they basically had carte blanche for some of these places because they were so desperate to have somebody use them during COVID. That, you know, it gave them access, you know, to get, you know, it gave it a little more authenticity to have like live real locations in the movie. So yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting. One of the things they mentioned in the beginning of the movie, which I was a little surprised to find out was actually true, was that no movie version of The Mousetrap, and uh, as you pointed out to me, no book version either, could be made in England as long as the mousetrap was running for a live theater. So when they, when we say it's been running for 70 years, that means that one of Agatha Christie's most popular stories has never been published, has never seen an official, (laughs) an official English publication or an official movie made out of it. There've been a couple foreign countries that did variations. (laughs) Yeah. You know, knockoffs like South Korean DVDs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they were foreign language ones, so that they weren't necessarily done in the English language either. So yeah. that made it. And and you know, it's interesting because you know, for all of that, I don't think Agatha Christie ever expected it to run that long. I mean, it's, I mean mm-hmm. she she's already dead. It's her estate that's maintaining it now. And yeah. to be able to keep audiences going to a a little known play on the mm-hmm. West End of London. I, it has been released elsewhere, but it has never ceased its run in the West End. It has changed theaters, I think, three times, but it has never ended its run. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy to think about it. Well, in, in two weeks, I will actually be in the West End of London. Mm. Three you weeks gonna go now. You going to see it? Uh, uh, not that. We, we already have tickets to a play called The Goes Wrong Play, which... You can actually see on Amazon Prime. Uh, they hmm. have several versions. Well, you should change them out and go to see the mousetrap. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at least I'll be able to see the theater, and maybe I'll take a picture, and we can throw it in. Add it to the show notes at the, after the Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I'm looking forward to you know seeing London as a whole, but seeing the West End in particular. Yeah, so, it'll be cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, the only other piece of trivia that I have as an initial reaction is that, as I noted when I said the title of the movie at the beginning of this, The Mousetrap is actually the second title. The story that the play is based on was originally going to be called Three Blind Mice. So when they made this movie, they used the I can't remember what legal reason she couldn't call it Three Blind Mice. So she used the title, The Mousetrap, instead. But See How They Run is the second line of Three Blind Mice. And so I, forever when I was like, why would they name a movie See How They Run? 
And it wasn't until I found that piece of trivia that I was like, ding, 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 ding. That makes so much more sense now. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if, you know, it's like Happy Birthday where it was actually copyrighted in the public domain. (laughs) Yeah. I have not seen the play. I don't know anything about the play, but I read somewhere in my research that the killer in the mousetrap whistles three, three blind mice tune. Yeah. You know what that reminds me of? Avengers, Age of Ultron. Mm. Yeah. Where Ultron uses the song from Pinocchio. Right. In a very dark way. <laughs> but using that bit about the, you know, referencing the very well-known tune, it adds sort of a a spooky memory trick to it so that uh, when you think of it, when you hear the tune, you'll actually think of the film or the the mousetrap play or something like that. Yeah. So I actually, as you mentioned, <laughs> I'm a fan of quirky murder mysteries, and uh, this one was one of my choices. And see how they run scratches that itch for me, and it, <laughs> it did a good job. Yeah. I sort of compare it to the two that I've watched most recently, which are Knives Out that we reviewed about a year ago. Uh, maybe more than a year. Yeah, I think it's been a couple is, of years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the movie Clue from 1985, which is a family staple for us. And See How They Run doesn't rise to the mystery of Knives Out or the quirkiness of Clue, but it does a good job on both, and it makes for a very enjoyable movie, in my opinion. But for cinematography and direction and... And stuff like that. I think they did a really good job. Because they're making fun of themselves as much as anything else, they throw in all these stereotypes. But somehow they manage to keep the stereotypes a little, you know, fresh. Mm -hmm. The young, doughy-eyed police recruit and the Scrabble hard detective, you know, they're all in there, but... The actors really did a decent job of bringing them to life, in my mind. Yeah. And Sam Rockwell, in particular, one of my favorite actors, he has a tremendous amount of range. He did that one-man movie, Moon, which was knockout performance as well. The humor was, like you said, a bit British. (laughs) (laughs) And... That makes sense because Adrian Brody and Sam Rockwell were actually the only two Americans in the cast. And the fact of one of those two Americans, the only character who was an American was also the guy who nobody liked, you know. Yeah. It's sort of And he was a playing an American. Americans. Yeah. Yeah he, yeah. he was an American, yeah. Yeah, Adrian Brody was an American playing an American, but he was the only American playing an American. He was also the only American character anyway. Yeah. But Rockwell uh, made this movie that much more enjoyable for me. So how do you say Constable Stalker's actress's name? Is that Sorcy? Sorry. Sorry? Let me... Ronan. She's an Irish... And the director told her to just be herself, so she didn't actually have to put on any kind of accent yeah. for the movie. So she was just using her own natural accent, I, which was kind of cool. I loved her accent. Yeah. 
She did a great job. Saoirse Ronan. Ah, Saoirse. Okay. Well, before we get into our our first theme, I do want to remind you that you can support our podcast, and we are listener-supported. We want to give special thanks to our current patrons, Isaiah Santiano, Craig Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, Peter Chapman, who give to us generously on a monthly basis. And we also want to thank a new patron that just joined us right after our last review. And and I apologize in advance if I slaughter your name, <laughs> but I believe it's Maltese Ecklenboom. And he is our second international patron. So we thank you very much for your support. He has signed up to give just a, a dollar, basically. He signed up in euros, but I think it translates to a dollar a month. And you can give as little as a dollar a month, as much as you like. And you can give by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash patron and sign up for a monthly gift. Or you can go to areyoujustwatching.com slash PayPal and give us a one lump sum. So we do appreciate all of our our supporters. Okay, so our very first theme, and I think this is going to be the fun one, because mm-hmm. part of the humor of Constable Stalker's character, and you see this even if you've not seen the movie and all you've seen is a trailer, <laughs> you've seen yeah. this. Because it's actually they they bear down pretty heavily on this in the in the preview for the movie, but Stalker keeps jumping to conclusions every time somebody says something that sounds like they may have done it. She leaps to the conclusion that they're the one who did it and tries to arrest them. Arrest them, yep. So I think she tries to arrest like what four people and uh, through the movie at least four. Oh, definitely. Yeah, so it's it's pretty funny. I mean, the way it, it's done, and, and she even admits to it about halfway through. is like, I'm sorry, I jumped to a conclusion again. And she's just so quick to judge. And I was thinking, you know, jumping to conclusion, I was not exactly sure where we came to the, you know, using that phrase. But it could hmm. be, you could phrase it as rushing to judgment, because that's the same thing. It's like you... Yep. You jump past all of the information you would give a jury, basically. <laughs> you know, it's like both for and against a crime, and you just rush strictly to the judgment without listening to all of that intervening information. And you rush to the judgment and you don't listen to anything else. And so I got to thinking, and I was like, we don't need to like bear down real heavily on that in the movie because it happened over and over and over again. It was like they were hammering it with every scene she was in. But applying that to how we are to live life as Christians, I think this is probably one of the easiest ones to apply a Christian worldview to. Because Mm -hmm. scripturally, we are actually cautioned against rushing to judgment. And over and over again. So I'm just I just picked out a few verses So the first one I found was, and this is directly out of the Sermon on the Mount. Most people take it out of context. So that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. So Matthew 7, 1 through 5, do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. And the reason I say this is taken out of context is because a lot of people will say this says you are not to ever judge anyone. 
and that is not true, <laughs> mm-hmm. is basically saying that you're supposed to judge yourself first so that you're not being a hypocrite. And then you can judge your brother as long as you are have judged yourself first and you're not being a hypocrite. Right. So. And, and when you judge yourself, you will find yourself wanting mm-hmm. if you are doing it honestly. And that's the whole point. Right. Right. It's, we're called to be discerning and you can't be discerning without judging. You know, Yeah. that's the great thing about Christ, right? Yeah. We're wanting. We are so <laughs> wanting. Yeah. But he took that wanting and turned it into adoption. And he took it from us and suffered the penalty for it. So, praise God. Amen. <laughs> so, the next one is uh, Romans 2.1. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. And, I mean, it, this is... <laughs> Not exactly the same thing as right before, yeah. Uh, but that's that's the point. We right. we are just as wanting as the people that we look at and say that's wrong. Yeah, but you know when when somebody hears a Christian say well, you shouldn't do that, the first thing they think is, "Oh, you're Mister So Perfect." <laughs> I bet you've never looked at pornography or stolen a pen from the office or robbed yeah. the bank or. You know, <laughs> or okay, I mean, maybe not the bank part, not the bank part. Yeah. Or, you know, how easy it is to be hypocritical, you know, where where we hold others people to standards that we ourselves don't keep. And that is deadly for a Christian walk. I mean, you don't. Mm-hmm. I, I've heard this said so many times. It's like, you know, I don't go to church because I see those same people at the bars and and, you yeah. know, doing things that are not Christian outside of the church. If you're putting on a holier-than-thou attitude when you're at church, but then you go and do all of the unsaved things during the week, what kind of witness is that to the people around you? Because just by presenting yourself as a Christian and saying, I go to church, you are representing Christ, and you shouldn't be then you know, publicly doing the things that Christians shouldn't. Well, you shouldn't be doing it privately either. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Romans 14. Now, the, I would recommend when you have some time, go read the whole chapter, because this whole chapter is about liberty and, and love, the law of liberty and the law of love. But I picked out two verses. The 14.10 is, but you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And then in the beginning of verse 13 says, therefore, let us no longer judge one another. And that is holding people to the whole part of the liberty is that whole, you know, not eating food sacrificed to idols and all of, you know, the context of that mm-hmm. is, you know, having liberty, which we do have in Christ. We do have the liberty in Christ, but we don't judge our brothers based on how they feel about that liberty. Like the ones who have a conscience about eating or, you know, watching movies right. or TV or whatever. We don't sit there and laugh at them because, oh, they just completely being too too literal, you know, about locking that yeah. kind of stuff out of their lives. And we laugh at them for it. And and then, you know, you shouldn't feel the liberty to mock or judge your sister or brother based on those things. Yeah. So the next one is 1 Corinthians 4, 5. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes 
who were both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And then praise will come to each one from God. And this sort of drives home for me the idea that when we judge, when we say abortion is wrong, mm-hmm. when we say transgenderism is wrong or homosexuality is wrong, we shouldn't be doing it to condemn definitely not in our hearts and certainly not to other people. The purpose of our discernment is to speak the truth in love and lovingly lead them to Christ. Because when the Lord comes, time's up. Right. And, you know, one of the things that we all had to do before we accepted Christ was understand that we are horrid sinners since I came to Christ at such a young age, I didn't really understand how bad I was, only that I needed God. And the older I get, the more I'm like, I am so grateful that God still loves me. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, I fail him 10 times, 20 times every minute, it feels like. Yeah. So we want to share that relief, and we can't really do it if we are condemning people. We can only if, – if people think that we're condemning them. Yeah. We can only really do it if they see the love in us when we speak. Yeah. Yeah. And the last one is from my favorite book, The Bible. <laughs> <laughs> that came out perfectly. Uh, James four eleven through 12. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. And who are you to judge your neighbor? So this, you know, kind of takes us full circle back to what what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount about, you know, being careful to judge from a position of contrite and a penitent heart, knowing that you too are a wrongdoer. And the law, as James is telling us here, and as Paul says through numerous of his letters, his epistles, the law is there to help us see that we need Jesus more than anything because we simply mm-hmm. can't keep it perfectly. And so we can't go tell, you know, judging other people for breaking the law when we ourselves are also lawbreakers. And yeah. it, it just, it, it just doesn't come out right in any way. So all of that to say, <laughs> hmm. jumping to conclusions is should never be a Christian fault. <laughs> yes. Not that we won't do it because we're fallen human beings, but we should strive not to do it. And, you know, it's interesting because Constable Stalker's jumping to conclusions, you know, it's a result of her enthusiasm for, you know, what she's doing. She believes she's doing what's right and Mm -hmm. she's just a little bit too, too enthusiastic. But we see that in new Christians all the time, too. Yeah, exactly. You know, a new Christian who is like, oh, they shouldn't be doing that. But. Or we see I, it in old it, grumpy Christians, too. Oh, yeah. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, as they grow in Christ, 
you know, the they don't become accepting of it. You know, they come to understand that everybody is a sinner and it's only through the Holy Spirit that we're even able to determine it. Right. Yeah. <sighs> well, that was the easy thing. Hmm. Low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Before we move on, I do want to remind you that to connect with us. If you are subscribing to podcasts, we do recommend that you subscribe to ours so that you get it automatically in your feed whenever we release an episode, since we are not daily or weekly. We only bring one out once a month. We want to make sure that that is delivered to you when it comes out so that you can listen to it quickly. Hopefully you've seen the movie. And if you don't care whether you've seen the movie or not, that's fine. Mm. We do want you to join our Facebook discussion group, which you can get to by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community. And we definitely want you to join our Discord server, which you can get to by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash Discord. And the reason why we really want you on Discord is because we record live and you can come in and listen to us and communicate with us and talk to us while we're recording. And nobody took us up on the invitation this time, but... We do enjoy it when we have people This in. one was sort of short notice. Yeah, it was short notice. And and I don't think it's a movie that's, as we said earlier, is extremely popular. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know how popular this episode will be. But we're not – we're trying to avoid spoilers. So <laughs> hopefully yeah. people can listen to the review and then still go out and enjoy the movie. I, I don't think See How They Run will ever reach cult status the way Clue does. Yeah. But I I think once this hits streaming services, I think it'll pick up and, and people will start talking about it again. Yeah. It wasn't one that people really were willing to go spend uh, money on to see it in the movie. But if they, it mm-hmm. comes up in their streaming feed, they might, oh, that looks like something fun to watch tonight with the family. Yeah. Well, the next theme that I saw in in this movie, and I really do think they were presenting this on purpose. I think if if oh, you yeah. watch it intentionally, you will see this theme really woven throughout the movie intentionally and in in a very tongue in cheek manner. And and I think it's because of the era in which it's presented. It's the 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 early fifties, and mm-hmm. women's rights were still somewhat iffy back in the 50s they they were probably a little further along than racial rights were you know yeah. but women's rights were still fairly new and women were still they had made a big splash in society because they had taken over a lot of the jobs that the men did during the war and so men had started to get used to seeing them in the workforce and outside the home, but it was still a new place for them. And so you sort of see at least three different types of women in this movie, and the stereotype is really pushed home hard. And Tim mentioned earlier Constable Stalker as being one of them, and she is the the token hire. It's interesting because in, in the scene where Commissioner tells Stopper that the only help that he's going to get is this young, wet-behind-the-ears female constable. Kind of does this whole wink, wink, nudge, (laughs) nudge (laughs) kind of statement about women are the future of the department. I have said publicly, women are the future of the department. And then he turns around and asks her to get him tea. Yeah, yeah. So... You find out kind of just by following them home at the end of the day that she is a, you know, war widow who is 
you know, having to leave her kids with her parents while she goes out and finds a job to support them. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a sad story that kind of backs her and that's kind of her background. But she's this wet behind the ears, naive police officer who's extremely innocent and quick to jump to conclusions and super excited about, you know, Hollywood and the theater and actresses. Mm-hmm. And, and you've got stars in her eyes whenever she meets somebody famous. And so, yeah, I mean, she's <laughs> she's very much a a stereotype of the token hire, you know, of that era. If I could say real quick, not really associated with this theme, but yeah. When they were showing her home life, they were doing that split screen thing where they were showing her home life while they were showing Stoppard's home life on the other side of the screen. Mm-hmm. I think they used that very well. Yes, and they did. This yeah. this scene that they mentioned really drives home the differences between Stalker and Stoppard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, I mean, that split screen stuff they did. Throughout the movie, it was a beautifully done. <laughs> it kind of mm. reminds me a little bit of the way they did stuff in uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, but without the animation the feel. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It fit. It was really good. It it worked mm-hmm. into the era as well. The other stereotype that really stood out was Wolf is the uh. producer. That was mm-hmm. that has purchased the film rights to the play, and he has an assistant who is privately his mistress, and he has promised her that he is going to divorce his wife and marry her, and which you're watching as going, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Seen Uh this before. Yep. Yep. In fact, I think there is a line where she actually tells him a promise is only a promise if you keep it. Yep. (laughs) That whole mistress relationship is one of the motives that is given for the murder because the person who is murdered actually knew about the relationship and was blackmailing him about it. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those stereotypes that unfortunately has probably rampant back then and is probably still rampant now of women who have pledged themselves to men of power with the mistaken understanding that they love them more than they love their wives and that they will someday leave their wife for them. It's, it's been yeah. used so many times. It's sad. The mistake is not believing that they love them more than they love their wives, but in believing the crumb that's telling them that. Right. Yeah. And then the third stereotype that I think is to me one of the more interesting ones. And I'm interested in the just the casting of this particular character as a female is the woman who is operating the theater and is the agent for Agatha Christie of the material because she is the one that has sold the rights to the producer for the film, knowing about the clause that keeps him from making the film as long as the play mm-hmm. is running. So she's a bit of a shark. And they portray her as a bit of a shark because there's this really funny scene in which the inspector and the constable have come to interview her at the theater. And her mother, this elderly lady, had led them to her where she is and kind of like managing who is allowed in the theater when it's closed. And constable says to her, it's like, oh, it's so nice of you to give your mother a job. And she replies back, well, how long is she going to pay the rent? (laughs) Because <laughs> she, she's actually leasing her mom a room and gave her a job so that she could pay the rent. 
Yeah, that's not. Uh, <laughs> that, that's a very loving thing. Very. Yeah. 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 And she very much owns the fact that she knows that she is betraying Wolf, the producer, in mm-hmm. this, you know, contract that he can never work on. So. Yep. She's very much a shark. And I, I guess I should give her name. It's Petula Spencer. They call her Tui, I think. Tui. Yep. And. Um, Which I want to point out is the same name that the plant has in Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. Interesting. Who is also a man-eater. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She would be what we would call nowadays a very manly woman. And mm-hmm. which I think is an interesting stereotype for today's era. And I'll get into that in just a minute. So see how they run is post doing a really masterful job of poking fun at the stereotypes of the era. But at the same time, it makes me wonder how these kind of stereotypes reflect the harm that women's liberation does today. And I'm not talking about the women's liberation people of the era that gave us the right to vote and to work and all of the other things that we enjoy today as women, the equality with men, not equity. (laughs) But the problem is, is that these stereotypes still work today. And that is harming women in the long run. Because, for example, Constable Stalker was a token hire, right? They, he wanted to prove that the police were open to having women in the force. Right. Well, we have token hires today, and they're very harmful. So I don't want, I want to get too political here, but we have both a vice president and a Supreme Court justice who were nominated and picked because of their gender and their race above any of their qualifications. Hmm. And... That's harmful because it means that because there are quotas, it's like, or not necessarily, I, you know, I put quotas in quotation marks. They're not necessarily somebody saying you have to, well, some do say you have to hire so many of particular race or a particular gender, but it's that they want to appear to cater to the side of, of the culture who cares whether you have proper mm-hmm. representation. And so you hire people based on the publicity that it gets you for saying, look, I hired a woman. You don't care whether they're qualified for the job, but you hired them. And that is not true equality because the true equality is you get the job whether or not you're a woman. It's all based on whether you're qualified. You're not necessarily discounted because you're a woman, but you got the job because you were qualified for it. That would be true equity. The whole quota thing is supposed to be all things being equal, right? then you can consider stuff like gender or ethnicity, whatever. Right. But far too often it's used to ignore the all things being equal part. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that actually hurts women in the long run because then people just assume, oh, she was a token hire. Nobody ever thinks that a woman got the job because she was qualified for it, because everybody's hiring for representation, not for qualification. And that hurts, in the long run, women's liberation. So there are a number of laws hitting hitting the books in states that require companies based in that state to have specific underrepresented communities sitting on their board. (laughs) Which is good in theory, 
But what happens if you have four candidates and three of them are white males, highly qualified, qualified white males? Yeah. And a fourth candidate who is not quite as qualified, but happens to be a transgender handicap woman. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. So, I mean, the law is well-intentioned, but it's the kind of law that paves the road to hell. Yeah. Well, like I said, the stereotype becomes this person is there just to represent. Yeah. They're not actually qualified for the position. And then that assumption is then applied to everybody like them who holds a position anywhere in the world. It's like, oh, they're just there to represent. They are not actually qualified for their job. And mm -hmm. that hurts. And in the end, that kind of quota mentality, that representation mentality hurts the people that it's trying to help. Yeah, It also hurts the people who do it. They just yeah. Yeah. don't see it. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that really bothers me. The other thing, and, and this kind of goes to the second stereotype, is the Me Too movement that we saw just blossom, you know, right before COVID. Or mm -hmm. was it during COVID? I can't remember when it hit now. I think, I think it was before COVID. Yeah. Yeah. The problem with the Me Too movement is that, yes, it revealed issues where women like Anne in the movie were being taken advantage of, uh, where you know, they were in positions of vulnerability where they got taken advantage of. They didn't come forward because it would hurt their job or, you know, their future, really, or their mm -hmm. reputation. And so people were like coming out of the woodwork with these accusations. And then the accusations started being false. And then it right. <laughs> started to boil up into hate crimes, staged hate crimes and, and that kind of stuff. And then it, the whole thing fizzled out because people took advantage of it. And that is another way in which that kind of thing hurts because it's like people take advantage of it. When you believe yeah. all women, a lot of women will lie. And so you have to be discerning what? about which women you believe. It's, it, it is a literal application of the boy who cried wolf, the whole me too. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Except it goes in reverse because in the, you know, in the fable, he cries wolf and there's no wolf. He cries wolf and there's no wolf. He cries wolf when there's a wolf. Nobody believes him and he dies. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. In this case, it it's, you know, nobody believes him and uh, it actually happened. It's like the uh, the Olympian um, Nasser. Was that his name? The the doctor of the, the gymnastics? Mm. That had been reported five years before or something like that, and nobody took any action. Yeah. When it turns out to be very disturbingly true. And, and it does disservice to the true victims because now they can't come forward because people will just assume that they're lying because so many right. so many of them were. Just to, you know, either get money off of somebody or you know, how many of these ones that did come forward actually knew what they were doing at the time and, and were just using it as a form of blackmail? And they weren't true victims. They were femme fatales or, you know, it's like where they were, yeah. they were using the man as much as the man was using them, which happens hmm. more than you would think. And then the, the third one, I think, is a little bit more laughable because nowadays, if a woman was like Petula Spencer, they would just claim that she should just become a transgender man yeah because she's being mannish so therefore she must be a man in her heart and then that happens vice versa you know the the men who are feminine 
they should just become women. And now woman means nothing. Mm-hmm. And it, this is the thing that really bugs me about the transgender movement entirely is that it's pretty much destroyed women's rights because women, woman doesn't mean anything anymore. It doesn't have yeah. a definition anymore. And so how can we have rights as women if men can be women too? And how can we have reproductive rights when men can be pregnant too? How can we, I mean, none of this makes any sense from a social standpoint when they're arguing for women's rights on one side at the same time that they're telling us that woman has no meaning anymore. And the whole thing is just turned into a, a mush of societal posturing. But it, that's the enemy's plan, right? Yeah, yeah. To muddy the water so we can't see the lions coming. Yeah. So I just want to remind everybody that our true liberty is in Christ. And we can argue about representation. We can argue about rights, uh, some of which are really valid. I'm not saying that, you know, victims of sexual crimes shouldn't mm-hmm. shouldn't come forward and get justice. Some of it is really valid. But our true liberty is in Christ. And we've come back to this for so many times in our in our podcast, but it still holds so true in this in this discussion. And it's Galatians three twenty eight. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Jesus Christ. The only true equalizer is faith in Christ. All right, moving along, because we still have a lot to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> we want to remind you that you can share your feedback by commenting on the show notes, which will be for this episode at areyoujustwatching.com slash 133. You can call us at 513-818-2959 and send a text or leave a voicemail. You can email feedback at areyoujustwatching.com, and all of those are available. I do highly recommend that you text or leave a voicemail on our phone number because it has to be used every so often or we lose the number. So Mm. I just got another notice saying, you know, use this or you lose it. Use it or lose it. We love to hear from our listeners, so please do share your feedback. So one of the things that we thought was a very important theme in this movie in particular, because it actually focuses on the fact that it's doing it, is taking a a real story and fictionalizing it. And there is an element of disrespect that applies to the people who actually lived through or survived the original thing. And in the case of Agatha Christie's play, The Mousetrap, and the movie, See How They Run, specifically The Mousetrap, Agatha Christie actually based the story of The Mousetrap on a real series of murders that had happened, like, I think 20 years before. Is is that about right? Yeah, I didn't see the actual date on the crime. But yeah, it would make sense because they were children. Yeah. I mean, just last month we did 13 Lives, and in the past we did 33, and those were docudramas. You know, they mm-hmm. they were they set out to be as true to the real life story as was possible. As possible, right? And they didn't hesitate to attribute sources and to make references, so it was more like you know academic writing. But in the Mousetrap, and by extension, see how they run. They don't really give any credit to the source. 
And I say by extension, see how they run, because see how they run is actually calling out the fact that the mousetrap does that. Right. So it, it's a Pyrrhic victory, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> where, where, sure, they, they called it out, but they did the same thing and, and died in the process. So, you know, how do I say this without giving away any of the movie? <laughs> the struggle's real. <laughs> yes. So one of the elements of the mousetrap and see how they run is the murderer. And it ties into how that true story is used and the murderer gets upset. So... Or a vi isn't he a victim, though? He was a victim, not the actual murderer of the original case. He was... Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. He, uh, or the murderer is a victim. Right. Neither a, a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, wait. No, that, that, that just doesn't work. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he's a victim who suffered, who, who actually suffered. And that's part of the, the point mm -hmm. is... You know, the people involved in these murders at the time that the mousetrap started running, they were still alive. And, you know, if they went to the theater and saw it or even, you know, God forbid they worked at the theater and had to see it every night. Yeah. And be reminded of everything that happens. The pain, the just the unrelenting pain that just, yeah. would just come every time. Yeah. Just, I, I can't imagine the pain that you're causing. Right. And uh, it it's even weirder, if that can be true, <laughs> with See How They Run, because... It feels real. A fair number of the characters are real people in history. Right. The actors that actually were playing in the first run of The Mousetrap are portrayed. Yeah, Rick. Richard Attenborough. Right. And um, his wife. Who went on to be the eccentric millionaire in Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those those two were real people. So, you sort of... Agatha Christie was a real person. <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> and I believe the, the producer Wolf was an actual... Oh, was he? I think so. I don't think he actually bought the rights to the the play, but I think he was a real producer. And I... I don't think Copernic was real. Yeah, and they mentioned Catherine Hepburn. Yep. So yeah, they, they do a lot of Stalker throwing even out. did an impression of her. Yeah, they, they throw out a lot of real names of people. So they, they, they really do blur the lines when you're watching this, wondering how much of this actually happened. I remember when we were talking about this a few days ago, you, you were wondering, I wonder if there was really a murder at the 100th yeah. viewing of the mousetrap. <laughs> yeah. And it... it it has almost an, an Inception-like effect. Right. Of you're not really sure. You want somebody to take a top and spin it and see if it falls down. <laughs> I mean, they even finish it out like they do with real stories where they tell you what happened to all of the characters, you know, after the mm -hmm. fact. Like, he won an award and she finished her exams and whatever. You know, they, they kind of have that little cap off at the end that tells you what happens to everybody. And that was kind of the, the cue off that you usually get to, oh, these were real people, you know. So the it comes to the question of how can this be harmful? What happens is in a two-hour format, 
even, I mean, let's face it, even a 16-hour format, you cannot do the depths of somebody's personality true justice. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be things that are inaccurate that you have to take creative license with because it just doesn't work in the in the pacing of the movie or it doesn't work in the the overall story and the richard jewell movie which is actually called richard jewell directed by clint eastwood and starring sam rockwell comes to mind because his case was he was accused of being the olympic park bomber and his life was absolutely ruined but when the movie came out by this point he had died and i don't remember how he died but his family still took some offense to to how he was portrayed in the movie now can you imagine how much more offense if somebody had taken that richard jewell's entire experience and fictionalized it presented it as original fiction mm-hmm it and, would be yeah. far worse. Yeah. I mean, any any instance where you take the victim of a crime and turn them into a villain because of that victimization in their past, you're basically mm-hmm. dragging that person not only through the pain again, but you're turning them into something that they aren't, or you assume that they aren't. Yeah. So just the very act of fictionalizing can actually ruin the reputation of somebody Without ever even referring to them. I mean, if people see the parallels or whatever and they go, oh, do you think he yeah. became a serial killer after that or whatever? So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's harmful when you take somebody out of the context of their real life and build a fiction around them. Even if you don't call them by name or whatever, you're still representing that person and you're harming them. Yeah. Everybody knows that that was actually so-and-so. Right. Yeah. And and it just, it makes no sense to do something. It's like when we were talking about 13 Lives, one of the comments that I kept seeing over and over again was, you couldn't write a movie that's like this, you know, that the, yeah. the truth is stranger yep. than fiction or whatever. It's like, there are enough ideas out there that you don't have to drag somebody's name through the mud in order to come up with a good fictional story. And mm. I think you could maybe base, you know, murder mysteries on real events without, you know, like mixing up the details enough where it's not based recognizably on an actual yeah. case, you know. And and maybe even drawing from multiple cases to, right. to, you know, like they do with when they create one character to represent several people in a real, mm-hmm. a real telling. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, it just seems to me that... The whole point of these movies is to show the harm that fictionalizing somebody's real real story can do. Yeah. And I think it holds true. I think that should always be, a, you know, they always put these little statements at the end of movies, you know, that say that these characters were completely no. fictional. and Or at the beginning of Law and Order. Yeah. yeah. Any representation <laughs> to somebody in real life was unintentional or something like that. So mm-hmm. it should always be the case. You should never be basing those kind of characters on real people. Yeah. And, you know, it reminded me of of Romans 12, where Paul provides instructions on how we're supposed to behave and fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's important to remember that everyone we meet could be a not-yet-Christian. Right. 
I mean, the the thief on the cross came to Christ moments before he died. Mm-hmm. So we should be treating as much as possible everyone we meet this same way. And it's Romans 12. I, I'm reading a portion of it, but the whole, it, just like Romans 14, the whole chapter is very poignant. Mm-hmm. Romans 12, 14 through 18, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, instead associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And this is exactly what Christy is not doing when she took that story and and basically just changed the names to protect the innocent, so to speak. Mm-hmm. She she really wasn't showing any respect to the people who lived through it. And, you know, like we said, that's See How They Run does the same thing, but they're doing it to highlight the fact that the mousetrap does it. Right. And to point out the, the damage that it causes. Yeah. So there there was one other thing that I wanted to mention in this particular topic. And I want to set aside a moment for you know, the accreditation and the acknowledgement of of it being represented in actual facts as a true story. So there are benefits to taking the truth or events that could actually be true and, and putting them in a, in a fictional s- setting. And for support of this idea, I, I go back to Christ. He told parables, as he explains to the disciples, as a type of key to the secrets of heaven. In Matthew 13.10, it says, Then the disciples came up and asked him, Why are you speaking to them in parables? He answered, Because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have... Even if what he has will be taken away from him, that is why I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, and hearing they do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, you will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive. So Christ knew that that the hearers of what he was saying had not received yet the ability to understand the secrets. And by putting them in story form, he was both revealing these secrets and concealing them at the same time, hmm. which, you know, I sort of imagine it provides an aha moment to these folks who are actually paying attention when they have their aha moment. Yeah, the spirit reveals it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It burns it into their their psyche even more. <laughs> Well, I would agree with you that, you know, that's really the whole stated purpose for fiction, in my opinion. Yeah, that's there to entertain or whatever, but it is to teach a moral or a, you know, like even when Gene Roddenberry first came out with Star Trek, he -hmm. was trying to make commentary about, you know, he was making social commentary with that. I think it was only three seasons of it before it was canceled. And we don't count the third, much of the third season, by the way, (laughs) I'm just saying. 
Yeah. But, you know, like having a female, a black female as an officer on the bridge. I mean, that was unheard of Mm -hmm. back when he made that TV show. So he was making commentary about things through his fiction. And I think that really good fiction, that's what it does. It's undercover. It's telling something important that we need to know in a story format. And we learn through fiction. But at the same time, the whole cautionary tale of the mousetrap is that you you don't fictionalize somebody's life in a way that's recognizable. Yeah. So that force th- them to relive the pain. Yeah. That I think that was like one of the main themes that that see how they run was trying to portray. So we couldn't go yeah. by without talking about it. The last thing that I want to talk about, and it was kind of a last minute addition to the outline, but I think it's something we kind of have to talk about because. The person who is first murdered in See How They Run is the director. (laughs) And he opens the movie in a monologue. He's actually talking about how he went through this whole evening and basically how he got hired to do this film, but he thinks it's the most stupidest thing because it's a whodunit and everybody, you know, they're so predictable and it's always the the least likable person that gets knocked off mm-hmm. first. And then he's going on and on about how predictable they are and why nobody likes to watch him, that he's going to have to come up with some way to work with this stupid uh, screenwriter because the screenwriter doesn't understand his vision for the movie and how to make it original when it's a whodunit and whodunits are not original. And he's basically yeah. making himself a major pain to everybody he meets at this party. And, and then he comes oh, to the end of the monologue and he says, this is all to explain how I ended up, you know, back here getting murdered, right? And and then he says, and because it's always the least likable person who gets killed. Yeah. And they go way out of their way to make him as unlikable as humanly possible. Yeah. I mean, it's like he, he is the most unlikable character in the history of characters. <laughs> I mean, he did not do anything right, okay? And everybody had a reason to hate him. And of course, that's the thing, is, is that you want to murder somebody who everybody has a motive to kill. So it has to be the the most unlikable character. And there's a scene in the movie where Stoppard is knocked out, and while he's dreaming in his knocked-out vision, he has a vision of meeting Copernic, the the guy who was murdered at the beginning, at this bar in you know his dream. I don't in know whether the middle it's of a snowy scene, sort of like the entrance at the entrance to uh, Narnia, right? And one of the things that Copernic says, "Oh, I'm dead." He says, "Was anyone sad to see me go?" And Stopper just looks at him and he says, "Oh, all right then." <laughs> and <laughs> so I got to thinking about that. It's like. He's set up to be the most unlikable character. And it's really easy to pick out the people in our lives who we don't like, right? And Mm. as Christians, we should always be the one that people want to be around. We should not be the most unlikable character in any room that we're in, you know? And I think that that takes work because it's, as we've discussed earlier, it's so easy to judge people and to be judgmental and critical and unhappy and angry and bitter and all of these nasty things that people don't want to be around, right? Yeah. And it's easy to maybe not necessarily be happy all the time 
or it's e- well, excuse me, it's easy not to do the bad things. Like Pernick did a lot of bad things. He was like rude to yeah. people. He was he assaulted women, the maids that came to clean his room to the point they wouldn't come clean his room anymore. He did all kinds of things that just annoyed people. And it might e- be easy to avoid those things, you know, to to not do the the really bad things. But we also have to be the type of person that people want to be around because we're representing Christ. And if we're any other kind of person, we're going to drive, we're going to represent Christ badly. And yeah. I, I could go on and on and on and on and on with scripture <laughs> to support this. But in fact, Tim already stole one of my verses. <laughs> <laughs> Because, Sorry about that. Yeah, back in Romans 12, the one he just recited a few minutes ago, had this live in harmony with one another and do not repay anyone evil for evil. You know, just this basic be nice to people, you know? But here, I'm going to go through a whole list of them because I found a bunch and this just scratches the surface. I could go on and on and on. Hmm. Hebrews 13.2. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Romans 12, 9 through 10. Let love be without hypocrisy, detest evil, cling to what is good, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, take the lead in honoring one another. Micah 6, 8. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Wow, there's a lot there. Mm. Luke 6.35, but love your enemies, do what is good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. And Ephesians 4.32, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. If we did all of those things faithfully as followers of Christ, we would always be the most loved person in every room we walk in. Mm. Because they're not loving us, they're going to love Jesus through us because they're seeing him shine through us. I I sort of feel like there would be certain people would be like, no, he's way too nice. I don't trust him. (laughs) Yeah, and that might be the case too. Or we could end up being... And I think I've talked about this in previous, we shouldn't be gullible. So being kind right. and forgiving and loving and and lending without expecting anything in return and all of those things doesn't mean you have to be gullible and to be wise, because <laughs> we're also mm-hmm. commanded over and over again in scripture to be wise. So wise as serpents, but meek as doves. Mm-hmm. It's a hard line to walk. <laughs> but Yeah, it is. But in our being wise and not gullible, we don't have to be hateful and bitter. So I think one of my favorite things to watch on YouTube sometimes are the the people who take these scam callers and get into conversations with them. (laughs) Yeah. And and I got to think is like, I don't think well enough on my feet to do that kind of thing. But wouldn't it be cool to take the advantage of somebody calling you to share the gospel, you know, to to lead them into 
that's what you do when hopefully when Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, you know, to take that mm-hmm. opportunity to share Christ with them, to share Christ with the scammer. You know, he's probably in some call center in India or something who's, you know, he's yeah. being paid just following to make, a script. Yeah, just following a script and and he needs the Lord just as much as anybody. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just like we should be Christ in all of those situations and and be the most likable person in every room. It was a fun movie. I'm glad we watched it. And I yeah. hope everybody has listened to our review. We did not give away either killer. <laughs> Woohoo! Woo-hoo! We made it. We made it. So I thought we were going to have to do some bleeping. Yeah, I thought, yeah, or somehow get, you know, cut something out. I mean, we alluded to the murders, but we didn't actually give mm-hmm. them away. And if you are like me and actually want to know the cuz the see how they run managed not to reveal the murder in in the mouse trap mouse trap yeah they did of course reveal their own murderer because that's the whole point of the movie but <laughs> they did a caution at the end of the movie not to tell anybody so we have been trying hard not to but if you want to know who the murderers are wikipedia is the source because even with at I know. Uh, Agatha Christie's estate is actually sued them because they gave away the murderer in the mousetrap <laughs> and they still refuse to take it down. So if you really want to know who did it, you can find it on Wikipedia. <laughs> that concludes our review. I we, We've chatted about a couple things for November and it'll kind of depend on our schedule as to which one we end up doing, but it will not be a Marvel movie. That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a couple of movies to check out and uh and we'll make a decision based on how we feel about them. Yep. Yep. But uh I'm going to be going away for a little bit more than a couple of weeks. So we're on sort of a weird schedule for the next month. Yep. Yep. So we, but we will get something out in November. It might be the last day of November, but we'll get something out in November. And hopefully in December, too. I've already picked out a possible movie to do for December as well. So we think we can finish out the year strong. So we thank you all for sticking with us and our monthly reviews. And uh, join us again. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. ChristianPodcastCommunity.org.